0: Earth 66 million years ago. We now know so much about a world that was ruled by the dinosaurs. And the latest imaging technology enables us to bring them all to life.
1: How can you imagine, if you think about back in time, that sense of a thousand, a hundred thousand, a million, 66 million years, yet places like this were there, animals of all sites were walking around here. It just makes you feel as a life and as a person, as a human being, it puts it into massive perspective. But it also makes you think about how precious the planet is and how special the planet is, because we don't know of anywhere else in the universe that's like this, yet all this has happened. It's happening today, but it's all happened over this enormous length of time on this remarkable planet. This is Prehistoric Planet, the official podcast, an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by BBC Studios' Natural History Unit. I'm your host, Mike Gunton, an executive producer of the series. All episodes are available now on Apple TV Plus. I think it's fair to say Prehistoric Planet is the most challenging project I've ever taken on. And you don't often get the chance to reflect on projects like this, partly because you're moving on to the next one. But for this final episode of Prehistoric Planet, the official podcast, we're going to slow things down a bit. We are going to reflect on the series, the part it's played in shaping how we see dinosaurs and the ways it's made us think. And at the table with me is our lead scientific advisor, Dr Darren Nash. And, of course, asking the questions is our series producer, Tim Walker.
2: We're lucky enough to be in the position now where we can talk about what we've been doing for the last, well, for me personally, four and a half years. For you, Mike, I know it's over 10 years. I was working out, actually, the other day that this project has taken up almost 20% of my adult working life, you know, from the day I started my first proper job, which is not an inconsiderable feat. But for you, who's been doing it for 10 years, having that first initial idea, how does it feel to see it all come to fruition? It is, it's rare to have
1: an idea that you have that doesn't happen. It either happens quite quickly or it never happens. So having an idea that 10, 12 years ago, which took this long to get to fruition, is, yeah, that's kind of unique in in my nearly 40 years of making TV shows. So it has a special place. Definitely, definitely has a special place. Yeah.
2: And for you, Darren, I mean, I've got to say, I thought I knew a lot about dinosaurs when I started this project. And then I just had to bow down to working with you and realize that my knowledge of dinosaurs is incomparable when it comes to you. But how does it feel to see what you've dreamed of for? dare I say most of your life to actually happen <laughs> yeah I was very kind thank you Tim um
3: yeah dream come true dream projects dream team of people this opportunity to so as you know we've discussed this a lot I am not particularly happy with a lot of the efforts that have gone before because for whatever reason what you mean other depictions of dinosaurs other depictions yes. of prehistoric animals yeah dinosaurs and, and other animals of the time people have had to go, you know, they've been constrained in some way, and they haven't, sometimes they've tried, but they generally haven't brought this new view that we've got of these animals to the screen. But, you know, our mandate, if we're going to follow the science, we're going to do everything we can to portray them correctly, you've got to fully embrace this modern view of them, and that's what we've done, and the results speak for themselves. I must just
1: say, actually, you being on this project, of course it's for the science, but the real reason is when one of my colleagues and I went to visit you in your house all those years ago, and we walked in and there was more model dinosaurs than I've ever seen anywhere in the universe. That's made us realise, yeah, this is the bloke for us. This This is the most obsessive dinosaur person of all time. Yeah, and he knows quite a bit about dinosaurs too, which is good.
2: We have shown some familiar faces, some brand new faces in terms of the animals depicted, but you can't have a dinosaur series called Prehistoric Planet without having T-Rex and Triceratops Fair. in it. But but we're also showing surprising behaviour, aren't we? So in season two, we show T-Rex doing a little bit of hunting behaviour, which is unusual. If we watch the clip, mm. it's a wonderful representation of bringing together new bits of science and new techniques in filming. But what you were saying is about T-Rex is that of course, you have to have T-Rex. The trick is
1: not to have T-Rex doing what everybody expects T-Rex to be doing. And yeah, this is as you say, it's a good example.
0: As darkness falls, some of the herds that had been grazing out in the open retreat into the forest for shelter. Now, the odds switch in favour of the predators. Yeah.
2: It's a great shot. <laughs>
0: the eye Yeah. tyrannosaurs have the largest eyes of any dinosaur which gives them superb low light vision
3: ah the detail so like this oh my god I could just talk for ages about all the details we put into the eyes
1: but that's the window into the soul again you know that's what makes you believe they're alive
0: a group of Edmontosaurs They lack armour, but they're as big as T-Rex and twice as fast. To catch one needs
1: cunning. How this is shot is really interesting because in reality, this is a very tense thing happening and you couldn't move the camera, you know, you can't move a camera around very much if you were trying to film this because you'd make a noise and it would scare the scare the prey items, or, or it would attract the attention of the T-Rex. So, all these camera moves are super, super subtle, to keep it cinematic, but not feeling out of grammar, out of the, out of the natural history sh- f- filmmaking grammar. And it's quite a trick, because the temptation is, because you can do anything in CG, to put the camera where. but
2: we were very
1: constrained. Restrained,
2: not constrained. Mm. Well, both, actually. Constrained mm. and restrained, actually. We applied constraints. To be restrained, exactly. Yes. <laughs>
0: Each of the hunters carefully moves into
1: position. In terms of storytelling, to get the sense of strategy into these animals, you know, why wouldn't they? You know, these are intelligent animals and they would be... Every situation would require different strategy. I think that's what makes it feel so compelling. Are they going to get it right? Is the strategy going to work? Um,
0: then one deliberately makes a noise...
2: Why do we think they might possibly have hunted together? That's something that people, you know, often ask us.
3: Yeah, the main answer is we've got evidence from across the fossil record of dinosaurs that these were social animals that often did things together in groups, including mm. for tyrannosaurs, as, as you know. We've got trackways of tyrannosaurs that show big ones moving alongside one another. We've got young animals associated with larger ones, possible family groups. That's a pattern across non-bird dinosaurs in general. They're social group living animals.
0: Time to spring the trap. One T-Rex rushes out.
1: But it's quite nice mixing all that natural history and all that science and appeal into a, what is effectively a heroic emotional representation of, yeah. a, of these creatures, you know, which is nice because you know the danger is to with T-Rex is to go over the top there. I think in, in terms of their being super cool animals,
0: which
3: they are. But actually, that's quite a nicely heroic without overstepping it, I think. We did discuss... I mean, there's so many kind of storylines that were discussed but not necessarily finalised or fully explored. But, yeah, there were sort of various prototype versions of this that involved, like, a hadrosaur fighting back and winning against T-Rex because... Part of my thinking is we don't want to show like giant predators always getting their way. I mean, again, that's kind of like a natural yeah. history mm.
1: trope. Isn't one it? out of well, one out of ten hunts yeah. succeed
3: so, in and tackling an animal like an Edmontosaurus. That's no pushover. That is a big formidable mm. beast.
0: A perfectly executed plan by one of the greatest land predators that have ever lived in the swamps of our prehistoric planet.
3: As is conveyed in the in the sequence there, you have to use strategy and intelligence and like, you know, specific biting attacking it in a certain way to pull it off. This particular sequence has also got, I think, a very interesting kind of narrative arc. The idea that dinosaurs, big eyes, excellent visual abilities, they're gonna be hunting at night. Why do we think that animals with big eyes are gonna be hunting at night? This is actually a thing that biologists have started to consider only within the past couple of decades, partly because of night vision cameras. So people have discovered and demonstrated that all kinds of animals that we used to think were only day active predators, this includes big cats, falcons, all kinds of things, they're doing stuff at night. And how was this discovered? It was discovered with... Well, like I said, night vision cameras. And for many of us, we first learned this from things like BBC Natural History documentaries. So we've actually seen documentaries that show, wait a minute, what? All these animals are doing this stuff at night, the same as they do in the daytime. And well, here you go. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's kind of If like we a- were having
1: this conversation 30 years ago and we were saying, well, yeah, animals hunting at night, you say, well, there's no evidence of that in the natural world because we didn't know, because mm. we couldn't see it. Now you get a technological breakthrough and suddenly it's a
2: whole new stage. Again, that ties back into the authenticity of the series, isn't it? Because the series reflects advances, not just in science or paleontological interpretation, but advances in filming techniques that Mm -hmm. are being used for making wildlife documentaries. So we've brought that into the prehistoric planet world by showing sequences that are filmed at night or filmed with thermal cameras or uh, effectively starlight cameras to film in really low-level light level conditions so you can see behaviour that you wouldn't have captured yeah. 30 years ago. Yeah. This project is like... Um Like a pyramid
1: or like an iceberg. So, what you're seeing on the screen is this tiny piece of the tip of these icebergs or these pyramids, and underneath it is a massive, great bulk of content, which none of which on its own, what one piece isn't going to answer it, but you add this all together and you get this incredible inevitability that what you're saying must be right. And I remember we were in the office. And we were all gathered around this table. We were, it was about a five-way conversation with you and, and there was a, somebody in America and somebody in uh, Scotland all talking about th- this reconstruction of T-Rex. And they started to talk about the jaw muscle. I thought, oh, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. We, Behind the scenes thing, I'll get my phone out and I'll just put the video on my phone and I'll start filming this because this would be a nice, interesting thing. Fifteen minutes later, we hadn't even moved off that muscle. And I just in the end stopped because I just yeah, saw <laughs> my arms were aching. But the amount of detail, well, yeah. and the amount of what... People knew, mm. and also how they were using each of these pieces of information to extrapolate to some other thought. It just blew my mind. Yeah. And okay. I thought to myself, I'm going to
0: leave it to you guys. <laughs> T-Rex has the most powerful jaws in nature and can bite with the force of over five tonnes. One
2: of the, the things that we spent a lot of time worrying about was the colour of animals in particular, wasn't it? The colour of the the dinosaurs and the other animals. And it's a case often of truth being stranger than fiction, isn't it? If you look in the modern world, look at animals, there's some outlandish Mm colourations that you would never think of putting on an animal if Mm -hmm. you had to start from scratch. Something that I think of all the
3: time when I watch Prehistoric Planet, and I, I write about this quite a bit anyway, the idea that it's almost like if you do these animals right they're so ridiculous they're so over the top i think that automatically we in general all people but scientists in particular we sort of pull back from like i can't come on come on seriously an animal the size of an elephant that can like like have all these you know all these superlatives you could think of for any one of these animals and to know that they had The best vision probably on land of like almost any animals ever in history, you know, their ability to discern colours and that they were brightly patterned. It's like this animal is ridiculous enough. And to now (laughs) claim that it would have had like an avian, like bird like Mm. style of vision and that it would have engaged in ridiculous body language and it would have like, you know,
2: wobbled its head around its giant head crest. Well, really? I imagine like the first time people saw birds of paradise, you know, like well, couldn't well, believe what they were seeing.
1: You know, if the first time you see a bird of paradise doing that dance, it is the most impossible thing you could ever imagine. Yet there it is, yeah. and that's an interesting. John always used to say, John Favreau, the other executive producer on this, and he would always say that, yeah, but don't forget, you can get away with that because it is real and you have filmed it. So we've always got to just be slightly careful that we're we, we, you know, we've still got a slightly different constraints, mm-hmm. but nevertheless. I think birds birds were the were the real eye-opener for me, anyway.
2: Again, it's been a key feature of Prehistoric Planet, isn't it? Like, trying to keep our finger on the paleo pulse. And it's such a privilege working alongside you, Darren, to be able to find out so much about... The latest, in terms of thinking, you know we have a production meeting every week where the team gets together, and we have dr Darren's Dino download where <laughs> we get to find out the top three things from the paleo world that week uh, you know one of the things being that, that who knew one dinosaur a week on average is is described, yeah, you know? uh, which means that during the time of making the two series of prehistoric planet, we must have seen about two hundred odd dinosaurs described, you know, but um. Having your finger on the Paleo Pulse has enabled us to show things which are only just really getting recognition. Like very recently there was a publication about lips on dinosaurs, wasn't there? There was an article that yeah. just came out about yes. how there's this great
1: breakthrough about and I thought, well we've been doing that for
3: proving prehistoric planet right, right yet again.
1: again. <laughs> but we're had the curve. Have we not been doing that for four years?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good job. You hired the right scientific consultant, don't you think? <laughs> Always a moment to get in an ad. Yes, I'm available for weeks. There's a bunch of people that you could have hired that would have
1: said no to lips. That in itself is a, a slogan <laughs> that should be on your, yep. on your website. <laughs> what, yes to lips? <laughs> I say yes to lips. It was a secret weapon because what Darren allowed us to do was, because you were plugged into the network, there was stuff that was not going to probably be published for maybe many years... Or stuff that was going to be published just about the time we were coming out. So we had, this, we had this sort of secret information, almost like insider trading, so that we could make these calls and design these dinosaurs and tell these stories that although at the time of telling them, the general public or even the scientific world wouldn't know there was any science to back it up, but we did. So when the shows come out... So did the science to back it up, which is, it's a nice feeling. You yeah. feel a bit smug, baby. Well, <laughs> well, well, one well, feels a bit smug. Rightly
3: right? so, rightly yeah. so, Mike. I mean, obviously, yeah, we worked really, really hard to stay up to speed, you know, to keep in touch with relevant experts, to keep in touch with what's being published. We have an agreement often with scientists that we're not going to air until, you know, time X. So you can tell us stuff now and we won't, you know, we're not going
2: to show this on TV before you've published it. Don't worry. But there's a couple of examples throughout the production where we've helped to drive science, where we have actively, you know, collaborated with colleagues that have, have done something which then features in the series. I'm thinking about you know, the work we did with the paleoclimatologists and in the modelling that they mm, did yeah. to enable us to almost down to the day, say, what conditions would have been like at any point on the globe 66 million years ago. and Authenticity again. Authenticity yeah, yeah. again. And you know, we did some great work with colleagues in terms of, of looking at the velocity that certain marine reptiles could um, be capable of, which features in the series as well.
3: Yeah. Yeah, we haven't really had a chance to talk about this. The fact that we did go and spend time with... Uh, John Huddleston at Royal Veterinary College, you know, biomechanics expert. You know what? What can we actually say about the gates of some dinosaurs? We did as much work as we could at the time. The flight style of the pterosaurs and the swimming behaviours of the marine reptiles. We worked with all the appropriate experts and got loads of you know insight that we incorporated as as best we could. And for season two, this incredible story about the athletic abilities of Mosasaurus, this, the giant Mosasaur.
0: Camouflaged against the dark canyon floor, the Mosasaur can approach unseen, waiting for a young, inexperienced individual, the ideal victim. mesosaurs can strike their prey with such force that the impact alone can kill it's an attack so swift the elasmosaur almost certainly never saw it coming
3: it's one of those things where again we all of us involved in it were sufficiently well informed to already have some ideas They're like i think this animal is probably going to be ridiculous in terms of its like speed and power and that kind of stuff but let's actually get some numbers down so we can justify what we show and also it helps it make our people doing all the actual cg they actually want to know what speed is it when it exits the water is the whole animal leaving the water or is half of it leaving the water what does it mean for an object it collides with you know we actually commissioned a study where we worked with scientists that worked this out for us and incorporated it yeah. also
1: it just makes you realize like tim was at the beginning it's some of these animals are the most incredible animals that have ever ever existed and that thing yeah y- imagine if you if you know i've seen humpback whales breaching that's pretty awesome but imagine seeing that thing not only breaching but <laughs> with an elasmosaur in its mouth yeah which in itself would be an extremely animal to see but bre- you know it's just just mind-blowing. I was almost going to say I wish I could have seen it, but I have. I've seen it in (laughs) our (laughs) show.
2: I think personally for me, I'm so proud of the marriage of science and art together and the the way we've created something which draws on the latest findings and, and years and years of research, you know, from when dinosaurs were first discovered and all the other prehistoric animals. But we've collaborated with so many different people to create this wonderful piece of art which i think it is it is art definitely do you think there's a legacy that prehistoric planet is leaving are we seeing Mm. what it's leaving in terms of how people think about dinosaurs and the prehistoric world
3: yeah i think so for sure i mean i think that we absolutely met the expect and exceeded the expectations of the people that kind of already are on board with this, right? So we've already got this, like, massive fan base. It's like, finally, someone's done these animals right. Okay, so we got that set of people. But what's kind of more interesting is the other people that hadn't thought about this before, they're like, oh, my God, dinosaurs are actually way more interesting than I could have thought. It's like, yeah, why didn't I know about this before? Why did nobody tell me? Why did I not get the memo? So for me, it's like... The people that watch documentaries, the people have watched that have watched prehistoric planet. It's the fact that they have been embraced into this world. They're now all sort of like dinosaur evangelists, the same as we are. Do, do you think? I mean, it's a, perhaps it's a, oh, too bold a claim, but this is the benchmark
1: now for what people now yeah. think dinosaurs or oh, the world of dinosaurs was like, and that hopefully will will run for till the next time, maybe another twenty years.
3: Mm-hmm. We uh, we know. That we, those of us involved in this, in the making of the series, we know that we have brought the modern view of these animals to the public. It's kind of surprising and amazing that, we, that that hasn't happened before because a lot of this stuff isn't really new. So the idea that feathers were widespread in dinosaurs, it's not a new idea. It's been kicking around since the 1960s. As a kid of the 80s, I grew up drawing feathered dinosaurs, excluding birds. We found feathers on dinosaurs in, I think it's 1993. So it's like, this is not news at all. But it is clearly for the majority of, you know, humans. So for people to see our fully feathered velociraptor and say, wow, I had no idea that a dinosaur would look that awesome it would look that good that it makes perfect scent as a feathered animal it doesn't look like you remember that picture we had on the whiteboard mic with the this is bad and wrong and this is what they should actually look <laughs> yeah, like. so when the when they're feathered correctly they look like a real animal they look beautiful they look cool they look awesome so my constant frustration is that there's always been this pushback to not show that
2: new view we're talking about the not just the physical representation but the behavioral representation as well aren't we so we know we've introduced feathers into lots of the dinosaurs but also these unusual behaviors where they're not just running around and roaring and fighting (laughs) they're doing what could almost be seen as mundane bits of activity just to get through their Normal day, which is yeah. what 90, 99% of their lives are. Yeah. yeah. If you go and film lines, they <laughs> literally do nothing they all day, don't sleep. they? Yeah. yeah, they sleep. And then they get up, walk around for 20 minutes, and then they go to sleep again. <laughs> we both
1: were worried about we cannot mess this up because mm. this is, we've been given an enormously Lucky, opportunity, you know, powerful opportunity
2: to do this once, and a responsibility.
1: Yeah, 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 but, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a responsibility and opportunity to, to the world. You yeah. know, it's without sentiment because it is such a fascinating piece of our planetary history, yeah. and
2: you know, we haven't got a time machine, but this is, as I said before, this is as close as we're going to get. I'm walking with dinosaurs. That was about twenty-five years ago. Jurassic Park was about the same time. Ish ninety-three. 20, so. Right. And there was a a definite effect on paleontology. You know, people got into dinosaurs and, and wanting to study them. Do we think that prehistoric planet might have a similar effect? You know, is it going to be that toy dinosaur that people find in the cereal box and then get obsessed with and want to go off and find out more?
1: Good question. I mean, you'd hope, wouldn't you? When I
2: travel the world, I bump into people, and they
1: say, "I'm a research scientist because I watch Life on Earth." I'm a research scientist because I watch sometimes it's something even I may have made, you know. So, it, and it does have that inspiration because it does open a window onto a world that you never would normally get the chance to see. Generally, it's very, very hard to see much of the natural world, much of nature, because we just can't, whereas the camera can. Mm. So I think, I think it probably will
2: inspire people. I hope it does. Yeah, and Darren, you know, you've got your finger on the paleo pulse. Are <laughs> yes. you already seeing an effect? There's definitely people now, people in their sort of 20s and 30s, that
3: are... Um, they, they, they saw Jurassic Park as a kid, and that's why they actually became a scientist. So I would say, a couple of decades down the line, we're definitely. Going to, I'm pretty confident we're going to see people say the same thing for prehistoric planets. Like, yes, that is what g- gave me that, you know, spark of interest. I, um, wa- I wonder if it would, because one of the ways of, you know, there's probably not going to be a million
1: paleontologists. It's, it's easy to become a naturalist, you know, a wildlife buff. that is a, but I wonder whether it will bring a bit more funding to the research because that one Mm. of the things that's been really fascinating for us as non-specialists is to meet some of the specialists and understand the 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 extraordinary scholarship in the what people do it is absolutely remarkable you know you look at some bone or something rather than they and what they've been able to draw out of some fossil or some moment through brilliant Lateral thinking scholarship—it's yeah. just mm. remarkable. I'd love to see mm. more. Of I that. think that
3: mm. so w- when when we get asked this question about you know will the TV series inspire you know, paleontologists of the future? I mean that's always difficult to answer because there are never many paleontologists. It's not it's not a career path that's easy to to get into. But what we are maybe neglecting or not emphasizing sufficiently is that dinosaurs, like a key couple of other subjects, like sharks, like space, they're gateway entries into you know science an interest in science of the natural world in general and you know there's it's quite common to bump into people today that study all, all manner of things in the, in the sciences and it's like my i was first as a kid fascinated in dinosaurs so yeah that that could be a key thing
2: okay so to bang the nail on the head what's the value of doing a nature series on long-gone animals
1: Well, that's a public service broadcasting question, really, isn't
2: it? I felt quite philosophical uh, recently. As as we've been making the series, I've been thinking about how we can't see these things anymore. Mm. And when you recreate them to the level of detail that we've done, it's become like a privilege Mm. to glimpse into this long-lost world and to realise that we're only here for a tiny blip in geological time, you know, as humans, as dino- dinosaurs were around for over 120 million years, right? You know, so if they can go at any moment, we can go at any moment. Well, anyway.
3: Dinosaurs aren't extinct,
1: though. Are
2: All right. right, you know what I mean, though, yeah. okay.
1: <laughs> I do think it was a public service broadcasting bit to this, you know, wreath and educate, inform and, and entertain. That's what doing something of like this does, yeah. And that is that is a part of the fabric of society. I think that's important to do. And, you know, it gives people pleasure and it gives people something to think about, in the, certainly sometimes in the way you're describing, but also just the curiosity about nature and about the natural world. And being curious, as I think you were saying, Darren, it's a gateway to being curious about fossils. and about. Look at Attenborough. I mean... Why is Attenborough the great natural historian he is? Because he was fascinated in fossils. So you know, it, it all adds to that kind of general curiosity about of humanity to find out about the world we live in, whether it's past, present, or future.
3: We've got these fairly noble views that we want we want the natural environment to you know persist into the future we want to do things that we can to help the environment and how do we do that you know I'm paraphrasing david attenborough obviously we encourage people to be interested in the natural world and, and care about animals and you could say that even by learning about the animals of the past it does encourage people to, to remain on, on message people love animals people love I, I don't i don't mean like bunny squeezing loving i mean like like fascinated with like awesome animals like people uh, admire tigers and sharks and elephants you know people just like what an incredible amazing animal and i think part of our attraction to dinosaurs is that it's like you know that a big crocodile a big whale a tiger that's an awesome animal but now here's a thing that's sort of vaguely built like a crocodile mashed together with a tiger and an eagle and yet it's like the size of an elephant and it could bite you in half it's like these animals are just like wow i think Darren, there's a bit of
1: that because you wrote that about in your book i remember saying about that they are the sort of ultra animal yeah and but there is also something about the mystery of them which is that when you see a T-Rex skeleton, you have to do a bit of thinking of it, you have to do Mm. a bit of imagination yourself. So do you think, this is a sort of kind of self-destroying question in some ways, Mm. do you think by showing people our interpretation, which is we hope is the most accurate as possible, we're getting we're, we're spoiling any of that magic? Or do you think that's it, it's another magic?
3: Yeah, well, I, I don't want to disagree with you, but no, I don't think we're spoiling that. And I actually don't think that that is... A I don't part, either, by the way. Yeah, OK. I don't think that's part of the appeal because I think what people are satisfied... By more is when you tell them exactly what it was like they don't like it when you say to them we don't know what's going on here this animal could have looked like this or it could have looked like that in my experience they're not so keen on that but if you say we know we know this animal had like a posterior pterygoidus muscle that weighed 45
2: kilos yeah, yeah what's that what's that yeah that's, yeah, this, that's in the <laughs> script obviously <laughs> so i mean thinking philosophically how do you think thinking about geological timescales makes us contextualize the world today you know as a as somebody that has been around the world filming every animal on the planet what has thinking about the last 66 million years done for you mike
1: tricky question i mean good question i suppose there is a parallel which is that I went to Antarctica about 10 years ago and we flew towards this glacier and it was a massive glacier and we kept flying and it didn't get any didn't get any smaller. We were flying at 150 knots and it just kept getting just didn't just didn't change and then we landed again. And I thought this is so vast and I feel so insignificant. In a few weeks I'll be back in the UK but this will stay and this extraordinary scale and just power Of this environment really had an impact on me and i think when you flip that on its on its side if you like and think that's scale today but if you think about back in time that sense of how can you imagine a thousand a hundred thousand a million 66 million years yet places like this were there animals of all sites were walking around here it just makes you feel as a As a life and as a person, as a human being, it puts it into massive perspective. But it also makes you think about how precious the planet is and how special the planet is. Because there's probably, well, we don't know of anywhere else in the universe that's like this, yet all this has happened. It's happening today, but it's all happened over this enormous length of time on this remarkable planet.
2: Mm. We went to incredible parts of the globe to film for the series, to incorporate our animals into. We were focusing on locations and areas that still provide... Proximity of what it was like sixty six million years ago. Are there places in the world that we can still find that easily? I know what you're getting at. Is is there a is there a sort of a little handhold on this on mm.
1: that time I was just talking about that ancient time that can make us yeah. give us that little connection back to that time? It's it's, it's a really thoughtful question. Mm. Yeah.
3: The fact that in prehistoric planet we're in the Mesolithic and we're in the last part of the Cretaceous, the part that's closest to us out of the whole of the Cretaceous, closer to us than the Jurassic, closer to us than the Triassic as well. So this means that we're in a bit of time where parts of the world actually aren't that different from today so the cretaceous a whole bunch of like important events had happened in terms of like what climate was like what mountain ranges were like what the distribution of continents were like what the flora was like what environments were like so as a person of the modern world if you were a time traveler and you walked around in the mastriction there's some, some environments that you went to that would have felt you would have felt quite at home they wouldn't have been that different so uh, again, something that I I hope and I also think people will take away from prehistoric Planet is you know we say enough times that this is the Earth 66 million years ago and we have made it clear I think it should be obvious even to people that aren't paying attention to the sciencey stuff that this is the planet at one slice one particular slice of history. Now we move around in a six million year span, the Maastrichtian age, this last part of the like Late Cretaceous. But whatever, six million years that's a blip in time there were, as we've made clear, there were dinosaurs, you know, for like another 150 million years before that and, important thing that a lot of people don't know, dinosaurs were latecomers on the scene. Like, there were millions of different kinds of animals before there were dinosaurs. Billions. Whole other dynasties, whole other groups of animals that came and went before dinosaurs first evolved. And also emphasises the point that the time span that we're talking of, the time span of the age of dinosaurs, it's like it's way beyond anything that we as individual people, you know, it's way beyond the time frame of of human lifespans and generational times and whatnot. Mm. I, I, I don't. We we throw these numbers around, but we don't we don't know what they I can't mean.
2: Can't really comprehend can't them. Really. That's what so I was trying hard to say. To I just can't comprehend. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. geological time is a crazy thing, isn't it? Because T Rex is closer to us in terms of geological time than it was to the original dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by, by quite a long by way. Miles, yeah. Well, yeah. So
3: it's a famous dinosaur like Stegosaurus or yeah. Brontosaurus. More time between that and T-Rex than between T-Rex and us. Yeah.
2: yeah. One of the things that I think surprises people about Season 2 of Prehistoric Planet is the wide-ranging cast of characters alongside the dinosaurs. So in the sky, the pterosaurs, in the seas, the aquatic marine reptiles, and lots of other things on the land, one of them being a mammal that we feature. Mm-hmm. And I think people... Don't really associate mammals with being around at the time of dinosaurs, but uh, we show Adelotherium, which was about the size of a badger. Do you think that if the dinosaurs hadn't been wiped out by the asteroids, well, what would have happened to those mammals? Mm. Would, they, would, they have, would we have seen the rise of the mammal to the point where now, you know, us as mammals dominate the planet?
3: Yeah. This is something I've written about, you know, extensively, got a major interest in what we call speculative zoology. Mm. And people have gone back and forth over this over the years. The the main sort of take home at the moment is that if now, first of all, of course, dinosaurs didn't become extinct, several lineages survived the different bird groups survive to the present. It's still the age of dinosaurs. But if the big non-bird groups were still around, if they were still like the main big guys at the top of the food chain in the environments they were in the late Cretaceous, there wouldn't have been the opportunity for the majority of mammal groups to evolve. Mammals were diverse in the age of dinosaurs. They actually originated at about the same time as dinosaurs. There were Mammals were very successful in the age of dinosaurs, you know, living in the undergrowth and climbing in trees and all kinds of stuff. Some of them are swimmers, some of them are burrowers. But you wouldn't have this major turnover in the big animals of the world if that extinction event hadn't happened. You wouldn't say goodbye dinosaurs, excluding birds, hello, suddenly within like, you know, less than five million years, the rise of big mammals, hoof mammals, predatory mammals the size of like wolves and leopards. You know, bats, whales, you wouldn't see that. And in that case, there wouldn't be... There might have been a radiation of, like, little mouse-like primates, like limary-type things, but you probably wouldn't get, like, apes, and you probably wouldn't get humans.
1: But I don't know... I mean, I agree with all that, except that last bit. Because I. what I don't understand is why... Because primates are such a strange group. Why? Why couldn't you have had a separate... You know, it would have been a different yeah. path, but because certainly ape evolution is so weird and hominid evolution is even weirder and our evolution because there's so many strange mm. coincidences that happen. And if, if you were ever able to kind of trace it back again, which of course, paleoanthropologists are always trying to do varying degrees of success. There's so many strange twists and turns. I'm not sure. I think you're right. The, we, we probably wouldn't have had the megafauna well, we, or we may, but I'm not absolutely certain we wouldn't have had this a strange group of primates. They may not have been ended up being us, but something weird and successful. Isn't oh. this,
2: but isn't this where chaos theory comes into its own? Because we've no idea. You no, of can course. speculate, we don't but no. The, you've no idea. If the extinction of most of the dinosaurs didn't occur, who knows what might have come? Because... Talking yep. about geological time again, 66 million years is a really, really long time. Anything can happen. We don't even know what's going to happen the end of next week.
1: It's also not just about competition between animal types, also about environmental change. You know, it's about the, isn't it, it's about the geography and the, the flora of the world. You know, grass, the, yes. would, would grass yes. have come without diet? Because, you know, yeah. I suspect grass it would, would. It would have, yeah. because it was present in the Cretaceous. Yeah. So, yeah. so it may be that it's actually, grasslands is a massive driver of mammal evolution yeah so
3: yeah Yeah. well having thought about it having looked into it i am absolutely confident there would be (laughs) primate killing tree dwelling non-bird dinosaurs of many kinds and that would prevent the evolution of uh, fruit (laughs) no listen you're the expert i'm not it's (laughs) it's true that we can't know we really can't know i know what happened octopus
1: would have turned <laughs> <laughs> would have actually come onto land and there would have been a dinosaur eating octopus well, and have, they would have oh.
3: the world. Would you have octopuses if ammonites didn't go extinct because of course if there's no end-cretaceous extinction event there's no ammonite extinction event so the seas would still be like Ruled by ammonites, billions and billions of them of diverse species, and that would have all kinds of knock-on effects for everything about marine food chains. Do you remember in that meeting when John Favreau opened a certain book, which I won't mention, and he went straight to the page of the dinosauroid, which is this imaginary humanoid dinosaur, hmm. and he said,
0: "Series 4! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Well, what mean.
2: is it? What you know? What is the future of of filmmaking in this world? Do you think?
1: Well, it's a very rich vein. These conversations have demonstrated that you know we've we have really just scratched the surface, not just in the types of animals, but what we could, the stories we can tell about them. The interesting thing about this is that we never set out, weirdly, to make the best CGI show we could. We set out to make the best natural history show we could that featured dinosaurs. And as filmmakers, the tools are part of what drives our innovation. You know, it, we have ideas, but we also see tools that allow us to Sometimes they drive the ideas. And I do think seeing what's of coming in this world of visual effects, for want of a better word, I think there's a really interesting things to take this on to, the, to another level or to tell new stories. But ultimately, they will still be stories
0: about the natural world. They bear witness to crucial moments in the lives of some of the most unusual creatures on the prehistoric planet... There is
1: just one more thing to add. Many of the contributors to this podcast series have said Sir David Attenborough has been a key part of the Prehistoric Planet project. And, of course, they're absolutely right. And as I said at the beginning of this episode, we wanted to use this opportunity to reflect. I had the chance to ask him if he had any reflections on this series himself. But do you think that... In the sort of pantheon of the projects that you've worked on from Life on Earth, do you think this is an important part of that that pantheon, that's to have done within the group of the projects you've done to do dinosaurs or to do prehistoric creatures, I suppose?
0: Yes, and, and I, I'm glad that we gave it time to develop because there is no doubt that we know very significantly more about dinosaurs than we did even... Ten, twenty years mm-hmm. ago. Certainly when I was a, a, an undergraduate and interested in paleontology, there simply weren't the answers. I'm not even sure that there were the questions amongst the people <laughs> uh, 40, 50 years ago. 40, 50 years ago, paleontology, like the rest of zoology, was still concerned with us putting labels on things, n- neighboring, is it a new species? That seemed to be the exciting question. It's not actually the exciting question anymore. The exciting question is how did they mate? How did they catch their food? How fast could they run? Were they aggressive? Those are the exciting questions now, not is this a new what's it, what's it, saurus? I have always been fascinated by the very, very big pterosaurs the science of small aeroplanes. Hmm. How did they get into the air? And, um, blow me. Uh, I mean, I, I always thought, uh, we, will, we will never know. The present is only a very small part of of the natural world, and, and to know the history of, of, of our predecessors, what brought us here, is an important thing. That's what science is about. It's about discovery, about knowledge. Knowledge is exciting. And uh, when you see a tooth which is that long or indeed uh, a backbone with a tail that's uh, as big as, uh, almost as a cricket pit. I mean, uh, you have to you have to desperately want to know how on earth it walks and why was it as big as that? And why are there no more animals like that? That's what science is about, but you could say that's what interest in life is about, asking questions. Why? When? How? That's what makes life fun.
1: This has been Prehistoric Planet, the official podcast. Listen on Apple Podcasts and watch all episodes of Prehistoric Planet on Apple TV Plus, where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by BBC Studios Natural History Unit and hosted by me, Mike Gunton, with the Prehistoric Planet team. Our executive producers are Kate Taylor and Lee Bacon. The producers are Tiffany Cassidy, Bina Kutani, and Tom Bonnet with additional producing from Hannah Rogers, The engineer is Peregrine Andrews, extracts from the television series narrated by David Attenborough. The main title music for Prehistoric Planet was composed by Hans Zimmer and Andrew Christie. Original music by Hans Zimmer, Andre Rosman and Carl Talvey for Bleeding Fingers music. The score producers are Hans Zimmer and Russell Emanuel, and the score supervisors are Greg Rappaport and Marsha Bowe. The music is performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales.